welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome, adventurers, to episode 72 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. My name is Patrick. Hey, King Scott here. And we've got a side quest today, Scott. We haven't done one of these for a while. I give you a little little bit of a break anyway, what with the Renaissance Festival going on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's It's been a busy one. But yeah, it's great to be able to go on one of these side quests again and talk to some new people. Just see what's going on out there in this like little unknown land of things to come. <laughs> well, you know what? I was thinking about it. By the time this episode airs, I think Renaissance Festival will be over. And we'll be two days ahead of the PGX Expo and the Retro Gaming Convention in Monroeville. Really looking forward to that. We're getting all of our details together. Got a, got a lot of things that there, – there's all a right, bit of an right, unknown right. there, huh? Calm down with the forward and backwards and everything else. I, I'm just used to the idea that today's Wednesday. That's it. That's all I need to know. And in this particular episode, Scott, we'll be talking familiars and foes. This one comes from Jordan Permy and Christopher Lees. They're the creators of what are called horrible adorables. Yes. And and it's just an interesting thing there. There seems to be this thing with let's make really, really horrible looking things for kids. (laughs) <laughs> and the kids love them. You know what, though? To their credit, they're called horrible adorables. They are but cute. But they are adorable. <laughs> so the backstory here, I had a chance to to meet Chris and Jordan. You'll recall, Scott, I was really looking forward to playing Heroes of Barcadia at Origins. Oh, my, yes. Yeah, where you're, you're – your drinking glass represents your character and your life total. The amount of liquid left in the glass is your life total your your health right <laughs> so i sit down to play that and there's a group of five of us and you know given the playful nature of that game everyone got to chatting and asking where everybody's from so you know do, do. One of the big questions that you ask one of these conventions, so, hey, any standout games, that sort of thing? And these two people there, they said, you know, we're actually here. We're showing off our own game. Would you like to play it at some point during the convention? Hmm. Now, my first instinct, right, is that this is a game that I've never heard of by new designers, and it's based on their designer toys. It's like, eh, if I find the time, I'll try to, like, yeah, you never know what you're going to run into, right? So, you know, I'm here to try the new hotness, and this could have disaster written all over it. Side note, Christopher, in this game of Heroes of Arcadia, he found an item where anytime a player rolls a one, everything in that game, you just roll a d20, and that determines whether you hit, miss, etc. He found an item that said anytime any player rolls a one, he gets to draw three cards. Ooh. And you start doing the math, you're like, okay, so this is going to draw him like six cards through the course of the game. Of the next... 20 rolls of that d20. I want to say a one came up six or seven times. He had half the deck in his hand. Anytime someone went to do something, he'd be like, hold on, going through his hand trying to figure out what he could do. It got ridiculous. Well, lo and behold, we did meet up. I did have the chance to actually sit down with Jordan and Chris and play their game. Teacher Ryan and I, we spent some time with them on Saturday playing it, and it was familiars and foes. Now, here we are almost three months later. We've had the prototype at our Level Up meetups uh, in the Pittsburgh area. We played it more at Gen Con. I got in a game with Will. 
Turns out it was a very lucky chance to have met these two and play this game in its early stages because I really liked it. I thought it was really good. Now you had the chance to play this one too. Yes, I did. I had a chance to play it. And once again, you roll it out and there's a felt mat and there's these cute little characters. And you're like, what are you getting me into here, Patrick? Mm -hmm. But once we started playing and once you saw the mechanics coming out, this was really a neat little game. Well, how about this? How about I do a walkthrough? You can give us a little bit of flavor and we'll get right on with the 8-bit breakdown. Straight into the point today. Sounds like a plan to me. Designed by Jordan Permy and Christopher Leaves, coming to Kickstarter on October 4th, Horrible Adorables presents Familiars and Foes. Familiars and Foes is a 1-5 to player cooperative style game where you play as one of five elemental familiars with their own unique abilities, earth, wind, fire, air, or aether. The game is played in four waves, each wave increasing in difficulty and revealing a new set of foes that must be defeated to save a witch or wizard. Now, as we like to do, let's start with some setup. The main board is set up on the table with the four waves of foes placed face down in each corner. Note that the foes have varying difficulty, and therefore you can adjust how tough you want your game to be. Each player receives their familiar, an adorable character with its own unique abilities, as well as asymmetric basic spells and a list of upgraded spells, all found on your player board. Finally, each player receives an artifact card from the artifact deck, and you're ready for wave one. The first wave of foes are set up on the main board, and this is really simple. See, the foes are tarot-sized cards that are placed horizontally in a space that is surrounded by numbers. And a glass bead is placed over the foes' starting health number on the health track, so it's really easy to keep track of each foe's remaining health. On each turn, a player must choose one of three actions to perform. A physical attack, cast a spell, or use an artifact. The success or failure of that action is determined by a dice roll or a coin flip. If a basic spell is successful, other players may contribute with a Ballyhoo action. That player simply pays a magic point and says Ballyhoo and flips a coin. If heads up, then two additional damage is dealt and the Ballyhoo can continue with someone else joining in. However, if a Ballyhoo fails, the player who failed loses a health and the Ballyhoo is over. After each player has taken a turn, the foes fight back. Each foe attack is done with a simple roll of a 20-sided die. The foe card shows what to do depending on the result. For example, a 1 to 8 might deal 3 damage to each familiar, while say a 9 through 20 might drain each player of 2 magic points. Now after all of the foes have done their attack, it's back to the players for their turns. Eventually, all foes will be defeated, allowing the players to move on to wave 2, facing off against the next set of enemies. Now, there is a key aspect of the game that I wanted to make sure we included in the walkthrough, and that's the ability to upgrade your character. You see, each character has a checklist of basic things to do. Land a physical attack, perform a successful ballyhoo, etc. If you complete your checklist, you unlock upgraded spells that you'll be allowed to perform moving forward. Now, it's important to point this out because in upgrading the characters, they really do become unique and differentiated. One familiar is particularly good at damaging all the enemies at the same time, where another becomes a really good healer. If at any point the players are defeated, then they've lost. However, should the players get through all four waves, they've won the game. So with the Kickstarter right around the bend, let's learn a little bit more about this one level up style. It's time for the 8-bit breakdown of Familiars and Foes. 
The good witches and wizards of Jorley have been kidnapped by a horde of evil foes. Their only hope is for the familiars to dutifully band together on a quest to overthrow the foes and save their spellcasting partners. They'll bumble their way through new spells, unleash ancient artifacts, and craft crazy combo attacks to succeed. They may just surprise their witches and wizards with a few tricks and familiars of their own. I uh, am known for uh, a rather booming voice yes. and, uh, and, and, and projecting quite a bit at the Renaissance Festival. So oh, you um, project. Why did someone else do the flavor text? I did say that. I was going to have you do the flavor yes, for this Yes, one, but, uh, yes, yes, yes. Well, I'll I, remember this, Patrick. I could not I will use remember their audio. this. <laughs> Adventurers, whether you've been with us for a long time or you're here because you wanted to find out more about familiars and foes and this is your first go-round with Level Up, we like to break down games in what we call the 8-Bit Breakdown, where we're going to look at eight facets of this game, tell you all about it, and conclude with, was it fun and who's it for? So we start with bit number one, Scott, the art and the components. What say you, King? Well, this is something here that you look at the artwork and it reminds you of something. It's very familiar looking. Okay. It's it's something now this is gonna sound bad here, but but go with me. All right. This looks like something that you would find at Hot Topics with the black felt and all these little horrible adorables or adorable horrible what are they again? Horrible adorables. Horrible adorables. But the thing about it is it draws you in. You see them with their names and the magic powers they do. It kind of reminded me of like the Smurfs or the Snorks. I mean, with their own little world that they have. And it works out with it. The cool properties with with what you're working there. I really, really like the artwork, what it was doing with the power page that you have with all the different powers that each one of your adorables has. There was a lot of great stuff here. Once you saw how A goes to B goes to C, everything just started meshing together and creating this great, great feeling of a game. Backtrack. What's a snork? Oh, a snork. A snork is an underwater smurf. What? God, when I say that out loud, it, why it, it, it sounds like I must have been on acid in the 80s. Why couldn't it just be a smurf that's underwater? I don't know. Let's talk anyway, a little bit about the uh, components. We've got uh, they, we've got the felt board. They said they want to keep a felt board. Uh, player boards. Now, in our prototype version, we had cards to represent like the player powers, like you were saying. Every character is going to start off with very similar powers, subtle differences, and then they're going to be able to upgrade into a second card with like, oh, you, you hit your limit break. These are your special abilities now. That's all going to be on a big player board. We've got the bad guys on the tarot-sized cards, and I love that they slot onto the spaces on the board. The board has three little, like, template spaces where you just place the card, and going down the left and underneath it are numbers to represent health. You just put a glass bead on there, and voila, that's how you track the, the health. That was kind of cool. The toy frog piece to represent the player turn adds a nice you know, charm, brings out the feel of this game, the world of the toys behind it. Uh, you got the D20 for various spell resolution, and you have a coin for the... Ballyhoo, which we'll get to. Yes, as you mentioned, uh, you got playful art. Characters are charming. Names are clever. Names are cute, and they're thematic to the toys. Uh, the only thing that I, I would say, like, ah, oh, just, it just didn't grab me. The backs of the cards, the backs, of the back of the box, uh, or, or the box front, rather. They use that black and white pattern, which I think was done to accentuate the vibrant characters. 
It's not a style that I love, but hey, art's subjective, right? Uh, That it is. So how about bit number two, the theme and the immersion. Here we've got a cooperative game where you're out to free the wizards and the witches that have been captured. And this is represented by each of the four main encounters of play, where at the start of each turn, you get that captive wizard or witch unlocked, and the matching character gains that wizard ability. I suppose the theme is somewhat loose, given that it is a toy line. And I mean, I'm not a pro with horrible adorables. I I assume you're not a follower prior to learning about this game, right? Right, right. Yes. Okay. So we dabbled a little bit into the Instagram. We learned a little bit more about the characters. I think I would sooner call this a mechanism forward game. That said, the artifacts, the spells, the enemies, and all the cards in the game, they're all thematically named. And there's something just plain fun about that Ballyhoo that gets the table excited. Okay. So Ballyhoo. Uh, We went over this in the walkthrough, but basically, you say, I'm going to use this spell. Do a spell, you roll a d20, and hey, you hit. So anytime somebody hits using one of their basic spells, anybody else at the table can go, Ballyhoo! They get the coin, they get to flip it, and if it's the the, the eye, I think it was the eyeball open, then hey, you did an extra couple damage. But if it's the eyeball closed... You lost one life and you lost your magic point for trying to do the ballyhoo. <laughs> There's something fun about that. Oh, I definitely completely agree with that. The great thing about it is ballyhoo is such a silly word. It's not one of those words that you walk through and you just hear things going on in the background, blah, blah, blah. You hear ballyhoo and it's like, what did I just hear? And then someone else yells, ballyhoo. <laughs> okay. And then you get into it and it's a great thing because it will break up any sort of tension or any sort of thinking that you're doing in this game and remind you, hey, I'm playing a game to have fun. Yeah, this and is a also, fun also, it draws other people in to see, what the heck are these guys doing over here? A great, great little mechanic that they put in there just to make it a little more fun and make it more cooperative feeling. I mean, you can sometimes play Pandemic where you're doing a cooperative game, but you're still kind of playing your own game. But now then with this little mechanic here, you're jumping in onto what the other person is doing that turn. Really sparks a lot of fun with this game. It's an element of agency. Like you get – this is my decision. No one can – okay, guys, like map out the turn like you tend to do in Mm -hmm. in cooperative games. You have that one alpha game. Okay, now if I do this, you have to do that. And then uh, Jimmy, you do this and that will get us our – no, no, that that's all mine. And you can't just say it. It's not like, okay, I'm going to – I'm going to go ahead and ballyhoo and flip it. No, (laughs) ballyhoo. It's like a celebrate, like, I want to raise a glass and clink it. Ballyhoo! <laughs> I love that you can cross off all of the items on your checklist. Every player is going to start the game with a checklist of basic things that you need to do. Do your very simple spell called Summon the Toad. Have a successful physical attack, etc. And after you've checked off all the five or six that are on your checklist... Then you get to unlock your upgraded abilities, and they're unique to you. That feels like you're progressing in the game. It it gives you a sense of character. It it lets you sort of sink your teeth into that, hey, this character is all mine, and it's different. Now, I'm unique compared to you guys. That brings out the theme of the character that you're playing. Yeah, and also with that, I love the fact that the things that you need to do to upgrade are not, like, near impossible. Mm -hmm. They're easy Mm -hmm. things to do. So 
you can feel that whole idea of accomplishment while you're playing this game, but still it's tricky enough that you have to go through and do all these things there. That's a great addition as well. Bit number three, we break down the complexity. Scott, what did you think about the complexity of familiars and foes? Well, it's not a complex game once you learn it. Once you get started, it's very simple. Everything is on the board that you need to know. You follow everything Mm -hmm. on there. It works out well. The great thing is, is once you upgrade, you become your own individual character. You're and you really have more different options. from everywhere else. Then mm-hmm. you get into the part now where it's like you're getting into more of a, well, I'll get into that a little bit later there. But being <laughs> that you have your unique character, nothing really seems complex, but it still gives you enough of, a, of an experience playing this that you're having a great time here. What are your thoughts on complexity? It's not a rules-heavy game. It's actually on the lighter side of medium. Um, Most of the time, it's going to be spend the appropriate amount of magic points for the ability that you want to use, and then roll a d20 to see if it works, right? Now, don't let that fool you. There is some depth here. You know, being a board game podcast, we like to focus on medium weight and up for our feature reviews, for the the special side quests that we look into. And this one, this one, we'll say, made the cut, right? Because there is a little bit of depth. Mm Mm-hmm. Namely, you have your six abilities and the ability to gain more. Uh, I think that trying to determine which of the enemies to attack and in what order matters. The fact that the difficulty of the game can fluctuate based on whether or not, uh, like we've had games where the first three attempts at a Ballyhoo have failed. And once, once one person fails, that's it. You cannot continue to Ballyhoo. Mm-hmm. But there's also been times where, okay, I'm going to do Ballyhoo, flip the coin. And okay, we did two more damage. And then Ryan joins and I'm going to do it too. And flip the coin, two more damage. And you have a little bit of an easier go uh, in that specific round or with that specific character. It's not a super deep game, but the more you play it, the more you're going to find these little synergies, these little combos. Like, I think the designers don't spoon feed the players everything right off the bat. Like, they they left enough stuff hidden in the game that you can uncover that there is there's just enough depth that I think that someone who's newer to gaming isn't going to have a hard time getting into it. Whereas a gamer isn't going to feel like, you know, there's just not enough meat on the bones here, right? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on that. Absolutely. Well, bit number four is where we have a look at the rulebook and the learning curve. And Scott, our experience with the rulebook was kind of in the pages stapled together stage. <laughs> so adventurers, we have to direct you to check it out on the Kickstarter page. Uh, it has at this point evolved a good bit. And for that matter, our, our first uh, the first learning of the game was from the designers. And then mm-hmm. the second learning of the game when you learned it was from me. And I was going off of what I knew from the designers. <laughs> so, like, we barely had to touch the rulebook. Learning curve, on the other hand, and everyone's going to experience that with every game. And honestly, I think after a rules teach, maybe halfway through that first batch of enemies, most folks are going to know exactly what the game is all about. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, you look at the board, and the board is pretty busy with a lot of stuff going on there. It feels that way, doesn't it? Yeah, so it's one of those things where you do need the rule book to just make sure that you have the right footing as to what's what and where you're going. Mm-hmm. But once you learn that two turns in, you're pretty much off to the races there and you know what's going on. And uh, that is a sign of a good design. Maybe I'd put this on par as far as the learning curve with something like Pandemic. Um, 
Yeah, I would I would say so. Uh, I would say it's actually with all the different things that you need to accomplish in order to upgrade. I would say it's just a notch higher than pandemic almost. Okay. Well, let's move then to bit number five, the meat. Every game's got that portion where you really got to put your brain to task and figure out what you're going to do. What's that main mechanism that you sink your teeth into? Where's the meat in familiars and foes? Well, for me, the meat in familiars and foes is when you upgrade. That's whenever the game really opens up like a bottle of wine to breathe. Now then you realize, okay, am I the tank? Am I the medic? Am I the ranger? What part you're going to be playing? And once that opens up, that changes what you were doing into a whole nother type of game now. Now then you have an actual job that you need to do. That's whenever you really start working together as a team. That That's was where my people idea. start going, oh, look what I can do. It's got to feel like this is a game that makes players work together. Like there's an obvious benefit, I think, to teaming up on one enemy at a time, but figuring out which one and which one of your abilities to use in order to uh, to attack. I think that gives the team a plan, but each player still has some agency here. So you still feel like you're playing your game. Yeah. And, and it's one thing there that I also like is that this does encourage you to communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really does, instead of like a lot of games where you're working cooperatively, but you aren't allowed to talk to each other, or you can't do this, you can't do that. This one here is, hey, let's talk it out, work it out. So this is a great one, even to get younger kids into things, to learn how to work as a team. And seriously, what kid's not going to have a ball flipping a coin going, Bally who? <laughs> That's our big takeaway. We really did love that. <laughs> no, what did you think the meat of the game was? I, generally speaking, I, I think that it is a combination of working together with the other players at the table. And I think a lot of that has to do with determining which enemy you're going to tackle first each round and figuring out the best way to go about doing it. All the while, there is a bit to discover with each of the familiars that each character's playing and how they're going to match up against various enemies. The meat is when that round starts, seeing the enemies and determining, okay, how are we going to get rid of these guys? Mm-hmm. Very much so. Bit number six is the replayability and variability of this game. Let's talk some variables, Scott. Character combinations. Now, we've done a lot of five-player games where you have access to every single familiar and all of their abilities, and that's going to open up the, the whole world. But, man, if you're playing with just two familiars or three familiars, that's going to change things up. Okay, I've got I've got Jinxie and I've got Pity Paw. <laughs> yeah. I've got Nutterson. You know, what? who's Narsen going to work with? How are we going to make these two combo and trigger off of each other? I think that that's a, a huge variable in play. And that's the thing here where you start all together and everyone's pretty much the same. But then when you upgrade, that's whenever you see how you're going to work together. Are these two puzzle pieces going to work together well or are they not? You have to learn how to make them work together well. There's a factor with the order that the baddies come out too. There's more baddies than you're going to need in the game. So obviously you're not going to see every one of them that's in the deck, but the, the bad guys, they can hit you for magic. Some of them have special abilities like I uh, can't, can't suffer damage from a physical attack or only takes damage from a physical attack, that sort of thing. Some of them attack and they hit everybody's health. Some of them hit your magic points. 
There's a big difference in a round where the three bad guys all hit magic points versus the three bad guys all hit health. Mm-hmm. Or whether or not there's a healer or two of the like some of the bad guys, like when you roll for them, if you roll, say, between a 12 and a 17, it's going to heal all the bad guys for three points. Boy, if you have two of those out, you've got you've got like a what are they, a, you've got a slobber knocker of a round. You're yes. trading blows for a while that round as opposed to to other combinations that you might see. I thought that was pretty influential. Yeah, there's there's a lot of neat things in this to really create a variable environment that you're going to be playing in. One of the biggest contributors to that are those artifacts, that deck of artifact cards. You don't get to see all of those in a game either. And and some of them are remarkably powerful, but they're usually like one-shot abilities. Once you use it, it's gone. And finding that the timing to maximize the artifact, like, "Eh, I want to use this now. Is it going to be enough for it to be worth trading it in? Because I might want to hold on to it. And you might see a different one this game compared to next game. And what if this familiar has this artifact? What if that familiar has that artifact? That's a big variable. And also, whenever you look at the wizards and witches that you can unlock, that also, going back to my puzzle idea here, that gives you other pieces you need to fit together into your puzzle to make it all work. This is really a puzzle trying to figure out what's going to work best, what's going to be the most efficient way to take out the foes, unlock all your powers, and mm-hmm. get everything working together with each other. Now, having said that, I, I while there are plenty of variables in the game, it does still follow a similar arc. You know, I, I don't think you're going to set it... Okay, uh, we have a, a review game, what, last week or next week? We're doing this spill. I don't know. We're, we're caught up in the time warp here, <laughs> but we're doing this spill, a cooperative game where there are end game goals that are different. And it's a big deck of cards and you can, you can change up the, the difficulty each time. And from the variables in the game, like sometimes your end game goal is going to have you do two of the four things. Sometimes it's going to be a little bit of all four things. And mm-hmm. it, it feels like a different game because of that different end game objective. In Familiars and Foes, we do always have that final objective of get through all four rounds, you know, basically kill all the baddies. So you're always going to have that same arc. But I do think that there are enough variables to keep it just different enough each time to get it coming back to the table. Very much so. Very much so. So we've said all these wonderful things, but then we come to bit number seven, as we always do. Every game's got them. Let's talk downsides of familiars and foes. I want to start here, Scott. we got a cute theme, which I think for some hardcore gamers, that could be that could be a turnoff. Uh, but it comes with the upside of having a broader appeal, right? Yes, I don't know that uh, me personally, you know, if, if I'm going, if I'm going to the the friendly local game store and I'm looking for my next game, I'm looking for something meaty. I'm looking for Barrage, Twilight Imperium, you know, through the ages, and then I see the the horrible adorables. I might not give it a second glance, but that's me. There's plenty of gamers that they're going to look at Twilight Imperium and be like, yuck. <laughs> and they're like Roger go yuck, mm, and then they're going like to see. Someone. A, oh, stop it! You've <laughs> loved those games, Scott. And there's those folks that are going to they're going to look at those games. And they're going to go, no way, uh, uh-uh. uh. And they're going to pass the familiar suppose box and be like, what is that? Yes, you're speaking my language. So a bit of a subjective start for me. I'll say cute theme. Nah, I'm not big on cute themes. What you got? Now, now, this is something, once again, it's complete, completely subjective. Mm-hmm. Whenever you look at the board, it looks like you have a summoning circle. Like, we're going to summon demons. 
Um, so it's one of those things living through the whole thing of the satanic panic of Dungeons and Dragons when I was a kid. It's one of those things that there may be some parents that look at this and they're like, yeah, I'm not going to let my kid play this. They're, they're, they're going to be uh, summoning demons in the basement. No, 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 no. Once you get into it and see what the game is and the playing that you're going to be going through here, it's a great game and it's a lot of fun. And that's a big thing that you need to look at it. You need to look at it as being fun. But there are some people out there that look at this and they're like, Ooh, I don't there's know. Wiccan symbols. I know. <laughs> uh, adventures, you can tell we're kind of kind of trying to scrape the barrel here to find some downsides. I'll throw in one more. This is uh, on the light side of midweight, which is going to make it approach. This is another one of those lights, you know, downside, upside. It's on the light side of midweight. It is an approachable game and couple that with it being cooperative. I think that this can work very well with younger gamers, casual gamers, couples date night, for example, that sort of thing. But again, the flip side of that coin is if you're having your, your Euro gamers over for the evening, it's probably not one that's going to hit the table. But uh, again, you can probably tell we're, we're trying hard to find the downsides <laughs> considering the target audience. I think they did a great job, which will bring it to bit number eight. Was it fun? And who's it for? Yeah, it was fun. I had a lot more fun at this game than I expected to. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at it, I'm like, okay, yeah, let's let's play it and move on to the next thing. But as we started playing it, and as you start looking at the goals you need to succeed in order to upgrade, that chance of the who working or not working, and it's going to... Do I want to do it? Do I want to just like shoot ourselves in the foot and then screw everything up? But hey, we're going to do it. I was really surprised with it. Yes, it was fun. Who's it for? This is going to be more for, I would say, the people that are just getting into gaming. The people that are used to playing party games, but want to try something a little bit deeper. And also playing off of their already set toy line. Yes. That's another great thing too. And it's not one of those things where they took an easy game and just slapped the IP on it. They really went into a lot of thought into this game and what they put into it to make it a very, very nice game. Scott, when I thought about was it fun and who's it for, my first thought was, okay, we, we've got to think about who's the target audience. We've got a medium-light co-op. It's got a charming theme, and it's designed to be playable by younger gamers and casual gamers. So I thought, okay, if that's the focal metric, then I think this game's a home run. There's just something nice about having a successful roll of the D20 to summon the toad, check off on your checklist, and then two or three successful ballyhoos in a row. Like the table has fun playing this game. We yes. had it. We had it for our meetup at the vault, the one in July, and everybody was smiling, having a good time with it. And these, the people that came to that, like they're gamers. We had one person who's more casual at that group, and I know this individual. She doesn't game normally, but she was there and having a great time, smiling, grasping it. But the other people, they. Play the heavy stuff. They were loving it. You mix in the charm of the artwork. And I think that the target audience, they're not just going to like this game. They're going to treasure this game. You know what I mean? Like they're familiar with the toy line or it introduced them to it. And there's a good game on top of it. I think there's a fair amount of crossover between the people that they're trying to target and 
gamers. You know, the Venn diagram, I think that middle portion is actually pretty sizable. You know, Scott, we see posts all the time in like the Facebook or the board game Facebook groups like, oh, we're looking to uh, play with our kids. What can we play? And I don't think kids like, oh, can we play this with six-year-olds? I'm thinking nine, 10, 11, or we're having a double date, that sort of thing. What would you recommend? Get this to the table. I think this is absolutely going to crush it. You need something quirky and approachable. Get familiars and foes out. Now, adventure that has been with the podcast for some time, don't let that scare you either. You're the type that listens to a board game podcast and you move beyond entry-level games and you want those gamer games, right? I can't compare this to Beyond the Sun. But make no mistake, there is some depth to be discovered. Combos hidden throughout the game that are going to be satisfying when you find them. You can break this out when you're trying to introduce a game to someone a little bit more casual and still feel like you are getting a nice, meaty experience. Finally, if you're listening to this because you follow Horrible Adorables and you want to learn more about this game, it's excellent. It's not going to be difficult to learn, and I think it's going to present you with a fun challenge for you and your friends. Yeah, I got to say, you brought up something there that I really like. The idea of if you have another couple over for dinner or something and you want to play a game, you don't want to bring out something really heavy that you're like, oh, I can't wait to play this. You're going to alienate the rest of the people there. This one still scratches that itch for you to have something where you're planning things out to work that corner of your brain that you love to work out while the other people are still having a good time and flipping that damn coin and yelling value. <laughs> well, we had the chance to meet up with them at Gen Con. We uh, met them originally at Origins. We've got Jordan and Chris with us today. How about uh, one more ballyhoo for this segue? Ballyhoo. All right, Scott, what a day. We've got Jordan Permy and Christopher Lees here in the Level Up Studios with us. How you doing, guys? Great. Great. That's it. That's all we get for question number one. We're doing great. <laughs> question two. No, just kidding. Moving on. <laughs> all right. So you two have created familiars and foes. Now, uh, Adventures, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I had the chance to meet these two at Origins. We were playing a game and they said, oh, what are you guys doing here? And so we're actually here showing our game, and we got to chatting about that. Came to find this this was inspired by your own toy line, Horrible Adorables, and you said that that's a designer toy. Now, my mind immediately went to, like, oh, designer toy, like designer board game means something for like a hobbyist. You won't find this on the shelf at Walmart. And I was kind of on the right track, but you had a little bit more detail to provide than that. Tell us, what are Horrible Adorables? What's a designer toy? What is what is the world that we're working with here? Do you want to start off, Chris? What is a designer toy? Yeah, that's a big question. So, <laughs> I mean, everyone knows, I think, generally what a toy is. You got your toy aisles in Target, Walmart, whatever. Um, those are made by big companies that mass produce those. A designer toy is when an artist or an individual is making really small micro runs of toys. And probably the biggest comparison to something you might see at a store would be like, like a Funko Pop. Um, I think a lot of people know what a Funko is. Mm -hmm. Now, that's still definitely not considered a designer toy. 
But, you know, these are small run items. They're made in the same factories that the big guys make their toys in. And we're kind of breaking in there, doing these small production runs. And we're creating our own worlds, you know, our own characters. So these are independent properties that artists are making on their own. And they're going to these factories, having the toys made. And so they're being sold as collectibles. So these are collectibles that are marketed towards an adult audience. How's it that reminds me of the um, the shoemaker who, whenever he goes to sleep, the elves come in and start making all the shoes. So it's like everyone goes to sleep at the Funko Pop place, and then you come sneaking in to make your horrible adorables. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. You know, a lot of this started with toys that are called sofubi, which means soft vinyl. So this is a very specific process that happens in Japan. Mm -hmm. And so you think about like those old Godzilla toys and stuff like that, where it was, they, they weren't super crisp looking, yeah. but they were a little bit soft, you mm -hmm. know, you kind of bend them and stuff like that. Sometimes the spray isn't very consistent on all of them, like the paint, <laughs> they're a little, a little derpy. <laughs> Like yeah. You're saying that you guys are producing low quality toys. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're producing toys with character. <laughs> no, the idea is that um, there's there's a nostalgia component to this. So people, the the toys that they played with as a kid, you know, we're going into those same factories. Sometimes it's the same guys that pulled those toys out of those molds. And when we're saying factories, we're talking about really small places. Uh, like two people. Yeah, a few people <laughs> oh, okay. in the garage type thing. And so, you know, this is really artisan type stuff. But yeah, they're uh, they're they're molding and pulling vinyl. And so you also have this nostalgia component mm -hmm. to it because you're creating your own line of toys, but in the exact same manner that the toys that you played with um, as a kid were made. Yeah. And I know a lot of people in our scene will like compare it to a print of a piece of art. So you have the piece of art you see at a gallery museum and then you can buy the print and it's a less expensive version of that original art. So the toys are pretty much the same things because it's a lot of the artists are, um, I mean, they're working artists. They show in galleries. They make very, a lot of times very expensive pieces. And then the toy is just kind of a companion to the art. That's a bit more affordable, collectible. Yeah. You'll have an original piece and then these are basically the reproductions, but doing it in a manner, the way that toys are made. Yes. And this is something that, that gets in my mind. A lot of people say like with movies right now, the people that are doing movies now or doing toys right now, they have the ability to do these things to bring back the idea of what they had as a kid. Now they're in that position to do those things. So, so many things are going on with um, just reliving those old memories of being a kid and just bring those happy memories back. Sure, yeah. sure. You know, you see some of those properties that come back around the remakes of the movies and everything. Um, like, for example, one toy that we made, we were working with a company called Kid Robot, and they were doing a project with um, Care Bears. So mm -hmm. this was an officially licensed project, and um, we were asked to contribute to it. So we gave them a couple designs, and we gave them one. It was a fairly conservative design. And then we did this other design. Squirrel weirdo. <laughs> yeah, it was we. Uh, so so we we chose Share Bear. We had to choose which Care Bear we wanted. So we chose Share Bear, 
And we made it conjoined twins. So they're actually sharing their body. <laughs> nice. And that's the one that they choose. But yeah, we yeah. were blown away because this is, uh, Care Bears is owned by American Greetings, right. and, which is co- typically a, a rather conservative company, but mm-hmm. they gave the green light for this. And and they, they you know reposted it. They were advertising it. They loved it. We were shocked yeah. all about it. Yeah, that nostalgia <laughs> is, is big. <laughs> so yeah, you know, it's like doing taking that nostalgia property and then adding an artist twist to it. That's mm-hmm. a big part of designer toys as well. Mm-hmm. Now, we look at the world here, horrible or adorables. This isn't one of those things that just like, pop, it happens. This had to go into like all sorts of different things, sitting in uh, junior high or high school doodling on your notebooks, uh, sitting in uh, like a, an office meeting, making up the little familiars. What brought this world together? Who was the person that created the spark that began this whole world? All right. Well, um, so Horrible Adorables is now Chris and I both, but I will take claim it was my initial it was my my baby and now chris has adopted it and it's his too um so we both have a background in art i went to college for for fibers uh, and material studies which is basically artsy textiles <laughs> um and while i was there in my senior thesis project i got to i, I basically built this whole world of just curious creatures. A lot of it was inspired by cryptozoology and old timey circuses and all that sort of like great, wonderful, weird things. And I created this very strange eclectic group of creatures. After graduating, I was like, I want to keep doing this. I don't know in what way, like, I don't know really how to sell these things. And I need a job. Um, but I'm just going to keep making these in my own time and see what happens. So I was doing a lot of things with, or we still do a lot of things with felt and uh, textiles and bringing that together and mm-hmm. started developing this line, called it Horrible Adorables, because that's exactly what they are. <laughs> they're a little cute. They're a little creepy. Mostly cute, though. <laughs> the toys came a little bit later, but... Yeah, we kind of started, so before Designer Toys even, we did a lot of um, stuff in the indie craft scene. We were doing basically um, art fairs. I know like like Renegade is a big one. You guys have Handmade Arcade in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bunch of these around mm-hmm. the country. And it's, you know, it's not the same as like church basement art fairs. It's more like higher end people that have a background in art, mm-hmm. you know, more artisanal products. Quirky too, a lot of quirky. Yeah. So sure. we started yeah. going to these and we were getting a really good response to it, or Jordan was at that point. I was making displays and setting up the tent. (laughs) My bookkeeper. I was like your roadie. (laughs) Um, But our business just started expanding from there and just had a lot more demand every time we would sell out at the shows and we'd make more and make more. And to the point where I was like, Chris started jumping on board and helping out too. As I said, he has a background in art as well. So it was very seamless working together. And yeah, we just kept on growing it until we started going to um, toy shows. So there's a really big one called Designer Con in California. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just all the best, weirdest, 
strangest things you'll see in one place. And a lot of it is the designer toy component. And we brought our toys there, or sorry, not at the time toys. We brought all of our sculptures there and got introduced to that scene, uh, made connections with a lot of uh, gallery owners within the scene and toy producers, um, fellow artists. And uh, that's kind of where we got our big break too, because one of the uh, companies there called Kid Robot, which Chris had mentioned before, enlisted us to do a whole series for them. And they're one of the biggest toy companies within the designer toy scene. Yep. So that's kind of how we busted into that and have been uh, <laughs> yeah, and doing so, this since. You know, we do a variety of, we do gallery shows, we do conventions, um, you know, we sell our work online, we do some public art as well. So there's a lot to, as well as freelance work. Um, we actually do work for the big toy companies like the mm-hmm. Hasbros and stuff like that, doing design work for them. But yeah, you know, we'll be in Japan doing a gallery show and then back home grinding away on, you know, Easy Bake Oven or something. Like <laughs> <that>. <laughs> Get you one of those cookies cooked by a light bulb. Now, <laughs> Adventures, I want you to understand when, when we're talking about this designer toy, uh, this this world, this realm of creating these designer toys, you know, in my mind, I think, okay, so what, what are we talking like? There's a thousand people or something. This this is not insignificant. Your Instagram is up to about 22,000 followers for these horrible adorables. And I was just fascinated by that. At some point, the switch got flipped and we decided to make a board game. So who's the nut bar that came up with that one? Uh, his, his, his shower ideas. Um, so back up before we talk about that. So we had created this toy called the familiar. And it was the mm-hmm. first one that we had actually self-produced before that okay. all the, all the vinyl ones we had worked with companies, mm-hmm. but for this one, we, uh, we, well, we worked with the company and he, he helped us out with squibbles Inc was the name of the company. Um, but this is the one that first one that we did completely independently. Yeah. Like self-funded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, the process that we used for it is, uh, it's, it's all, um, uh, Slush casting. Slush casting, slush yes. casting, which I guess doesn't really <laughs> mean No, anything. I could have told you that. It was slush casting. <laughs> so, I'll so be we, doing some slush casting later on this afternoon, actually. Oh I'm like a toy soldier yeah. set. We've learned about mold making and casting. Is <laughs> <laughs> but, well, I'll get to why slush casting is cool. So slush casting is cool because you the, the focus is more on the actual vinyl than any sort of deco added on with paint. So you could do a lot of really cool stuff. You could add glitter and it's like, it's a glitter toy. Um, Then you could add like swirls of different colors and just do a lot of really interesting things. And we chose, we could do glow in the dark. So the focus is more on the plastic. So we chose this, uh, this creature, this familiar creature is very magical looking. And we did all these different uh, effects on him. So we did like a green glittery one, a clear translucent one, a purple swirl. And those were representing of five different elements, um, fire, water, air, ether, and earth. <laughs> so in that's found in the game. <laughs> in creating these very magical creatures, we were trying to decide on, all right, so how do we package this? How do we, you know, present this now to our audience? And so we started working on this in 2018, and this was probably 20 early 2019 when we're like talking about packaging, and we're like, oh well, um, they're magical creatures, you know, we don't want to just put them in a 
box or plastic bag or something like that. We wanted it to be more special. So we're like, oh, let's get like little magic pouches, like little drawstring pouches mm-hmm. that we'll put them in. It'll be cute. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we're joking around. And I think you said like, oh, well, let's just throw in a D20 while we're at it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And so we we left our our meeting with our producer, um, the, the the guy who runs the factory, and I took a shower after that. <laughs> and you know, it was like one of those washing. That's, that's your vital hair. to the story. Yes. Then <laughs> <laughs> the light bulb went off, and I'm like, why don't we put a D20 in? Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, why don't we put a whole bunch of different game components in there and build the whole game around these little guys? So this was about in February that I had this idea and we had a convention coming up in May and the goal was to get a working game so that we could put like starter packs of these components in with the packaging in those three months. Yes. So yeah, so we developed an entire game in just a couple months. It was all card based (laughs) And then like the idea was like, okay, so there's five characters. If you collect all five characters, then you've completed the set and you get all of the official cards. But there's also a print and play component too. So if you didn't only wanted one, but you still wanted to play the game, you could print it out. Yeah, it gave you a password to download um, the rest and everything. Okay. But that was like the baby version of what Familiars and Foes is today. Yeah, it was a fully functioning game. But yeah, that's that's where it started. And then we've just iterated ever since. Well. We were working hard on it in 2019, all through that year, and then you know the whole world kind of kind of fell apart yeah, towards the end of 2019, <laughs> early 2020. Well, and if you so, could explain what happened, I you lost <laughs> me there. <laughs> Leave the mystery. <laughs> One of you two has to, or both of you are gamers prior to creating this game, huh? Yeah, um, we both like games, but I don't know if we would consider ourselves hardcore gamers. I mm-hmm. think that it's a, uh, we had some friends that were really into gaming and we've kind of grown our game collection, just working or not working with them, but like playing with them and stuff. And we've gotten a lot more into it too. So I think we have an impressive game collection to you guys. It would not, <laughs> not be. How, how many games, how many games do you guys have? Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. 40? Yeah. 40 oh, respectable. Maybe. Yeah, that's a good game yeah. collection. Nothing wrong with that. Very nice. You know, a collection's anything more than three, so. <laughs> we'll take it. Yeah, so, you know, it kind of, the game kind of got put on the shelf for a couple of years during the pandemic. And then beginning of this year, we made the decision that, all right, it's going to happen now. And so early this year was when we really started working hard on it. We started looking into the conventions and figuring out how to do the Kickstarter. And that kind of brings us to to where we met you, I think. <laughs> That's right. You said that magical word that mm-hmm. everyone just perks up their ears whenever they hear Kickstarter. Kickstarter is a whole another world in itself. So what were all the things that went into figuring out the ki- of the Kickstarter? What's going to be in the box whenever the Kickstarter comes in? What can we expect to to get out of this? So I know you guys have had the prototype copy um, Mm -hmm. and there are things that have changed a little bit uh, that we're going to be adding even more awesome components into this. So my favorite component First off, is that we have um, a little vinyl toy that comes with the game <laughs> to kind of bridge that love of designer toys with the gaming. And that is our uh, Toad Place Marker 
And he'll be the kind of character that hops through and shows whose turn it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'll be the final. Um, probably the next favorite component would be the game board. We decided early on, you know, this is kind of magical theme, kind of ther- a tarot, tarot-esque type theme. Mm-hmm. So yes. instead of a game board, we wanted it to be a piece of fabric. So we mm-hmm. wanted a mat, a piece of cloth. Mm-hmm. And we didn't want it to be like, you know, that mouse pad material. So The neoprene. More- no neoprene. No. Mm-mm. So we want it to be more, you know, a piece of fabric that we lay out and then all the components are, are dealt on it. Yes. Um, and we have a ton of, uh, so in our game, you're, you're battling evil foes. So we have a lot of really cool foes. And actually, I should note that the illustrations for the foes are actually not ours. So I did the illustrations for everything in the game except for the bad guys. And we did that purposely because we wanted a little bit of a differentiation uh, between the styles, but still something that looked looked good together. Mm-hmm. And those were done by our friend uh, Brandon Baker, who has done work on different cartoon shows. I think he was was he at Nickelodeon for a little bit working yep. on stuff. Uh, he's an amazing like comic book artist and everything. So he did the all of the foes. There's going to be witch cards, character mats. Oh, yeah, that's something that's been upgraded since the prototype. So with the prototype, you have a lot of different cards in front of you. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Some of the feedback that we got was, oh, you know, it's a lot of information to take in. There's a lot of pieces and parts here. So instead of having maybe five or six cards in front of you, we're creating a single player board for each character. Okay. It's going to group all that together. And it's big. It's like seven inches tall by 20 inches wide, I think. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it's going to be like this trifold thing. So you unfold it and then it's all presented in front of you with all your spell scrolls and stuff like that. Yeah. You're opening up your magical tome. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Otherwise, I mean, we have some pretty cool ideas for our stretch components and stuff like that. Let's hear them stretch goals, add-ons. That's that gets me all juiced up. (laughs) Look yes, at her so. rubbing her hands together like, yes. <laughs> I really want them to happen. <laughs> so the game includes a bunch of artifact cards. They're just like mm-hmm. the poker deck size cards. We There's 15 that come with the game. We got another five mm-hmm. that will be added as a stretch goal. The prototype, it was a one-time use and you were done. But with the final design, you're going to be able to, to get those cards back and use them several times. Yeah. That was some of the feedback we got while game testing, too. Another thing with, um, so the, with the faux cards, I said we had another artist do them. So with the stretch goals, we're going to have a lot of artists do them. So we enlisted 10 different art friends that are in the designer toy scene, and each one of them is going to illustrate a different faux, which I'm super excited to do. We're just going to let them go wild. Like just, <laughs> you could you know, figure out what the name of the creature is and what it looks like. We're just going to give them the element and they'll do their thing. Yeah, okay. these are pretty big names. And in our scene, you know, most people probably <laughs> won't recognize them, but like like our friend James, he designed Mad Balls, if you remember Mad Balls. Oh, geez, yes. This is the caliber of people that are coming to do guest artwork in the game. Wow. And then we have an idea for a cauldron because what's more magical than that to like put little <laughs> gems in when you're done using them, have a little cauldron. Oh, the, the player tokens. So yeah. we currently have, you know, just punch outs with uh, images like, you know, the little pog type uh, components mm-hmm. for your player marker on the turn tracker. But we're looking at having an upgrade option to that to go to some wooden meeples 
So some custom cutouts with uh, screen prints on them. Oh, wonderful. All right. Uh, I got to ask because I would think that it'd be obvious. And I'm sure that it's a question of price, but why not have the player markers be small versions of the toys? Yeah, that's that's a price. That has to have crossed your brains, I'm sure. I was even thinking, man, it would be awesome if an at this might get cut from the show because I don't want to like feed ideas that people are like, oh, they should. Even if you had like every game comes with one random, horrible, adorable, you might get Nutterson, you might get fake, like you just every box has one in there. I, I don't know. I, that's a good idea. One. <laughs> well, you will be able to, um, for some of our add-ons, you can actually get some of the toys that we've done. Yeah. So you will be nice. able to get a Mimsy or a Pity Paw. Uh, yeah, Figitch was the one we specifically held back on mm-hmm. selling, so we had it for the Kickstarter. So mm-hmm. he is the Earth familiar. He's the glittery green one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a price issue. The toys they sell for forty five dollars, so mm-hmm. we would be probably more than doubling the oh, price. Sure, we yeah, if we had oh, no to. doubt. <laughs> but that's why we included the, the little frog, so that'll be kind of the touch of toy. And we're also going to be doing some some stretch goal sort of thing or not stretch goals. What do you call them? Add-ons? No, like the different levels. Oh, the different tiers. Yeah. And there'll be other ways to incorporate more toys as collectible items, but you know, yes. no one's stopping you from bringing them into the game too, <laughs> playing with them. Yeah. As, that's far a good as, point. as far as the add-ons go, we'll have three different vinyl toys available. We're going to have, we've we've done this before for gallery shows where we actually make larger versions of them that are all handmade mm-hmm. and flocked. Mm-hmm. So we'll have, that'll probably be the highest, the most expensive as far as the uh, add-ons go, but we'll have yeah. a limited number of those. And we had just actually talked about maybe doing some little mini flocked figures. So that's something that we normally make in-house. We hand mm-hmm. make all those. Mm-hmm. And when I say flocked, just so that everyone knows, yeah, that's I was, like... that was I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like when you think about like vintage toys that are fuzzy, or even if you think about a, a jewelry box where it has that velvety interior. Wait, so what that, are the... Uh, ca- like calico critters. Exactly. Is that what we're thinking? They're like fuzzy? Yes. Yes. You know, we must have dropped $200 on calico critters for my daughter. Uh, starting at age three, she never once played with a calico critter. And it's so weird because if she's playing, she never played with a doll either. If she is playing, it's always with an, what do they call it? An anthropomorphic animal. Like she'll play with animals and she'll make them talk. She'll make them like set the dinner table in her dollhouse and whatnot. Like we got her the Barbie's ultimate dream house. She immediately called it puppy dog's ultimate dream house. It was never for Barbie. <laughs> she wanted one Barbie doll because it came with a little dog in it. She opened that package. Barbie doll went in the corner. She played with that dog. I can't believe you would think calico critters are going to be a slam dunk with this kid. She never once played with a calico critter. Wow. Rant over. Wow. The floor is yours again. <laughs> <laughs> I am shocked. Uh, calico critters might be my favorite thing ever. Well, Although- maybe you need to introduce her to our stuff because we we have all of <laughs> the you know strange hybrid versions of yeah. calico critters. <laughs> but yeah, we're going to to do a limited run of the familiars. So we're going to take them to a mini size, probably under two inches, and mm-hmm. we'll print those. We'll flock them. And we'll have those sets available as add-on items as well. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So you can probably use those as your play markers in the game. Very deluxe. 
Now, seeing with the goals and everything that you have with the mini horrible adorables or adorable horrible, which <laughs> is it? I get confused now. Terrible horribles. <laughs> <laughs> seeing how you're trying to make a bridge between the gamers and the collectors, do you think that this will lead into, or is this something that you're planning to do to try and get some to go to the other side and back and forth? Yeah, exactly. Um, so when we started this project, um, we were like, I think that we were a lot more confident that like, we're like, oh, yeah, all of our. All of <laughs> We've our totally lost days, our confidence over the course of this. Our, our collector base <laughs> oh, oh, no. and stuff. And then we were thinking, we're like, actually, I don't know, actually know how many of our you know, our collectors. It's are, like looking at that Venn diagram. What's yeah, the, what's the they, crossover? I don't <laughs> mm-hmm. know. So I think that, so we have been making a huge effort to make ourselves known in the game community, the game community, but we still really want, uh, we want that crossover. We want to introduce the game community to our art in the world of designer toys. And we want to introduce our designer toy collectors to the awesome board gaming world. And um, I think that our, board game is actually it's directed towards all those type of people like just people that are getting into games and they want to play something friendly and cooperative and a little yeah when we set out to make the game a couple of the qualities that we kind of had written down was one we wanted to be cooperative you know Mm -hmm. we we wanted people to work together we didn't want it to be an ultra competitive game um, and that was just a taste thing you know that that's what we wanted to hit and the other thing is we wanted it to be a gateway game you know, we wanted this to be something that families could play or that friends could bring out. They could figure out together and work on it. Yeah. Um, because those were a lot of our favorite games when we started, you know, with the more independent type games, you know, thinking of like Ticket to Ride and um, King of Tokyo. You know, those mm-hmm. were our first introductions mm-hmm. to, you know, the non Parker Brother type games. And right, we wanted right. to to use this as the introduction to a, a co-op type game. Yeah. And yet you guys did hit a sweet spot. I, I have to say, and I said this in the first portion of the episode, when we played this at Gen Con, that was that was Will, the hungry gamer, who's played tons of very complex games. That was teacher Ryan, who teaches me games that I don't understand how he even learned them. They're so complex. Uh, That was Will's brother, who's designing a game. And that was me, who's like the world's foremost board game professional (laughs) podcaster. (laughs) My my point is... You had a you had a group of heavy gamer, hardcore gamers, guys that, that guys and gals that they're interested in playing deep, complex games. And while this does in fact appeal to a younger group, one of the things that we said, Scott, earlier is that this is going to appeal to families. I noticed on BGG it says fourteen plus. I think this could be ten plus. I think an eight year old, even because it's cooperative, you can kind of hold their hand as they're taking their turn. You, you know, you're not giving away strategy or because you're not competing, you're working together, they can grasp Mm -hmm. it. And yet you can shuffle in some more difficult cards and you can make the game a little bit more challenging. You can find combinations. Uh, It it is maybe a lightning in a bottle. Maybe it happened by accident, but you did find a means of creating a game that can appeal to a younger audience while also not being too light or too meh for gamers, you know, like we, we, with people that are listening to a podcast about board games, you know, they, they're not looking to play super light stuff. And I think this will still appeal to them. Yeah. Yeah. That was um, definitely in our mind. So we're, we're happy to hear you say that. 
we do have three different levels to the game. So, you know, there, there is a base level to start off on. And then as you start learning the game a little bit more, because, you know, we don't spell everything out. There's combination moves you can do between players. And it's, it's discovering those things and how mm-hmm. to build one move, you know, one player's turn upon another upon another. So that as you start playing the harder versions of the game, you need to know how to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you start on the hardest version, you're just going to get wiped out immediately. But as you <laughs> yeah. learn the game a little bit more, <laughs> you know, you, you're able to kind of flex those muscles and, and do some fancier things with it, too. So I think, you know, we try for replayability. We have a bunch of different foes that you're fighting, and then we have the different levels. And yeah, we are trying to appeal, of course, to, you know, as broad an audience as possible. Yeah. Um, as far as the age range goes, so that was the, the 14 plus, that came from reading an article about testing, <laughs> component testing, as far as what age is appropriate, you know. Like what, what you can put on the box. Right. What, what lab testing has exactly. to be done on the components and stuff mm. like that. And we're actually going to lower that. So we figured out what testing we have to have done. We're going to go ahead and do that. Our niece, who was nine, played it with us a couple of weeks ago. She, she got it. She was awesome. She, she caught on quicker than some adults that have tested it. So, <laughs> <laughs> But okay. we'll do is 10 on the box. Yeah, I think we'll probably put 10 and up, I think, is what we're going to want land on. All right, guys, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful talking to you and everything and letting us get a glimpse of the, the behind the scenes of what's going on. But mm-hmm. um, Patrick. Yes, sir. It's time. Chris Jordan, you've come on the Level Up Board Game podcast. You can't leave if you don't get to level up yourself. And we're going to give you that opportunity. So <laughs> who wants to go for You guys don't know what's what's going on now, do you? I know you said you've listened to an episode, but you didn't listen to one with a designer, right? No, no, no. We just listened to you guys before. Chris, you go first. (laughs) I I, I just just got to apologize in advance. (laughs) (laughs) Who wants to be the guinea pig? I'll do it. All right, Chris, here's how this is going to go down. I'm going to ask you eight questions. I want you to answer with the first thing that comes to mind. We're shooting for speed here. Scott, you got the stopwatch ready? All set. Chris, you ready? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) And... Go. Which familiar is your favorite? Jinxie. Aside from familiars and foes, what's your favorite board game? Hmm. We've been playing um, Creature quick, Comfort. Quick, quick. Fun. Yes, yes. <laughs> Creature Comforts. What is the best dessert? Uh, chocolate. The Ghostbusting Quartet consists of Peter, Ray, Winston, and who? Egon. What's cooler, G.I. Joe or the macho man, Randy Savage? Which G.I. Joe? I mean, no, come on, that's macho man. <laughs> Can you slam dunk a basketball? No. <laughs> Our mascot is a knight that we call Wilford. Can you make a toy out of it? Are you paying? <laughs> the worst popular movie that you've ever watched is? Worst popular movie. Oh, geez. TikTok, TikTok. The Room? (laughs) The Room? Is that popular? (laughs) I don't know, Scott. That was a rough go. That was a rough rough lead off. In the middle there. I mean, he's right in the middle there. I mean, that was impressive, though. Very, very good. (laughs) Jordan, you're up next. Are you ready? Are we keeping, (laughs) wait, we're keeping track of times? 
We're keeping track oh. of time, score, and your mannerisms while you do this. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> All right. I'm ready. I'm so ready. All right. Ready, set, go. Of the wizards and witches in Familiars and Foes, which one's your favorite? Sirena. In a one-on-one game of chess, could you beat Chris? No. Do you really own a taxidermized fox and possum? Yeah, who doesn't? (laughs) Can you drive a stick? No. After taxes, what is your annual income? (laughs) (laughs) Given Given three hours to do so, could you drink an entire gallon of milk? Oh, no, I don't drink milk. Tag team matchup, you and Chris versus me and King Scott. Who's going to win? Us, definitely. (laughs) If I'm watching a movie featuring a team of covert operative soldiers led by a character named Dutch who unexpectedly face off against an otherworldly monster, what movie am I watching? Mm. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Time. (laughs) <laughs> oh, it was Predator. Come on, it's Predator. What do you seen. think, Scott? We're a little choppy. We we did some good. We did some uh, some not so good. I'll leave this one oh, up to hey, you. Hey, hey. I think it really comes out to not getting some answers, being a little sun on the answers. Perfect tie. I th- you know what? We're going to give them the level up then. <laughs> clap track. Clap track. Absolutely. <laughs> Ah, thanks for humoring us, you two. We do uh, appreciate your time today. Now's the opportunity as we wind down and get to the end of the episode. We want to hear where can adventurers find out more about horrible adorables? Where can they find out more about familiars and foes? Obviously, we're going to have the Kickstarter here up with. I think I'm going to try and get this episode out within a week of launch. So Kickstarter's the obvious. I'm going to put everything into the show notes that you're about to tell us. Where can we find out more? All right. So Kickstarter is going to be launching on October 4th. You can find all of our information at familiarsandfoes.com. There's links to our Instagram, which is at familiarsandfoes. Uh, We also have a link to our Kickstarter page where you can sign up for those notifications when it goes live. We are part of Witchstarter, which is Kickstarter's super witchy occult themed October thing program Program. (laughs) we're gonna be part of it so we're super excited and then on the art side it's www.horribleadorables.com on instagram horrible underscore adorables and you can find everything else from those two yeah Excellent. Well, congratulations on designing a fantastic game that I do think bridges the gap. We wish you luck on Kickstarter. I don't think you're going to need it. I think you're going to get enough of that toy group. I think that Venn diagram crosses over beautifully. This is very appealing to the board game hobby. Good luck to you guys. Thank Thank you you so so much. much. It's been a pleasure. You know, I say it every time. It's always nice whenever we get the chance to meet up with designers and chat with them. It's extra special this time because we've already met them in person. It was a little bit more personal with uh, with Chris and Jordan. So thank both of you for coming on the show today. A lot of fun doing that, Aska. Yeah, it, it truly is. I mean, you've had a lot more history with them playing games and stuff with them. But yeah, it was it was great talking to them. Do you have a favorite toy growing up? Oh my god. Uh yes, I I did actually. Probably my favorite toy growing up was there was this spaceship called the Star Fox. And Wait. it was a battery operated spaceship and you would turn it on 
And whenever you would turn it, like tilt it going upwards, mm -hmm. the engines would start revving going up. And then you turn it down and then it would start going down. And then the tail fins on the back would pop off and they were two little scout ships that would fly along. And then they came out with this big cardboard like landing area. Never got a hold of that one, but it was just such a great little toy there. Oh my god, I I absolutely adored that. See, I'm that surprised toy. they had those when you were a kid. I thought you were going to say the wooden duck on the pool string. <laughs> well, at least you didn't Sorry. say. I thought it was going to be the stick. <laughs> Some guy came up with wheel. <laughs> I kid, no, what was I yours? kid. That sounds kind of cool. Ninja Turtles, the little action figures. Oh, yes. Absolutely. And you get like the van with the pizza shooter. I didn't have all the cool stuff, but I did have some of the figures. And I, that was that was definitely my my toy growing up. But, you know, I'd ask you because checking out these horrible adorables on their Instagram page and learning a little bit more about them, it's kind of neat. Like I want to – not just with horrible adorables. I kind of want to see what else is going on in this world of designer toys. Like well, what else is there? That's wild. I know it's it's something there that I'm not really that familiar with, but yeah, it's uh, that is an interesting little niche I gotta peek in on. Well, adventures, thank you so much for joining us for today's episode seventy-two. If you haven't listened yet, get on back to episode seventy-one where we reviewed the spill. Scott, it's looking like next week we might be joined by Hungry Gamer. We're gonna talk a little god tier. My nemesis is coming. <laughs> get the boxing gloves on. Oh, you'll hear from me, Will Brown. You'll hear from me. Folks, if you're listening to this the day that it airs in two days, October 1st and October 2nd, come meet up with us at the PGX Retro Gaming Convention in Monroeville. The good folks of Steel City Gaming are going to be there for a ton of tabletop. Brown Castle Games is going to have their crokinole boards. It's going to be a real good time. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to this. I am a definite extrovert when it comes to these kind of things here. So I will be saying hello and being silly all day, both days. So I cannot wait to see everyone. Well, Scott, until next time, ballyhoo! Ballyhoo! Thank you, adventurers, for joining us for this episode of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. That's where you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes and the Heatley Brothers. And remember, whether in hobby or in life, Always do what you can to level up.